wonderful to see each of you this morning. Locate in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. In just a moment, I'm going to read from verse 30 into chapter 12, verse 10. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man who in Christ was uh, 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from be becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen. Let's pray. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would... Be merciful to us as we gather around your word. We pray that we would be attentive, that we would be alert, that we would listen well. Lord, we pray against all distraction, within or without. We pray that we would be focused on what you are saying to us by your Holy Spirit through the ever applicable word. In Jesus' name, amen. picture was taken of a sign in the corridors of a Baptist church 
and school in the USA. The sign was for a grief share group. This is a, um, a support group of sorts for those who are dealing with grief, with bereavement, with loss. It's an opportunity for Christians and non-Christians alike within a Christian gospel-centered context to get together and to process the grief that they are facing. It's a very serious thing, and I would say it's a very good and godly thing. It's a very Christian thing to bear one another's burdens, and what greater burden than the burden of grief, of loss, of bereavement. However, this gentleman didn't see it that way. He took the picture to post online to mock and to opine and to say to men, men, never share your weaknesses. No good can come of it. I hope reading God's word is a rebuke to that mentality. He had a list of other things that are good to do. Maybe things that are, are nice to do. Things that men might benefit from doing particularly. But he said, again, men, never share your weaknesses. No good can come of it. It is absolute rubbish. It is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is against Christian living as it is outlined in scripture. It is fundamentally opposed to everything we have been learning from 2 Corinthians to have an attitude that looks down upon the weak, that looks down upon those who would share their weaknesses, that mocks and scoffs at those who, who, who would care for those who are battling very real and profound weaknesses. And, 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 and not because it, it, it's great and therapeutic to just sit in a room and share about our weaknesses as an end in and of itself, but rather in the sharing of our weaknesses together, we know God's strength. We know Christ's power. We are reminded of a Savior who was crucified on a cross, hung up naked like a piece of meat to bleed his life out for our sins, taken down from the cross, buried in the ground, broken and dead. God, the eternal Son, made flesh in the likeness of men, died for us in the most graphic and public exposure of weakness that his society had to offer. And he calls us into his weakness that we might know his strength. That cuts against the grain of all kinds of philosophies, whether it's uh, the... Um, uh, actual philosophers in various places that are um, uh, promoting various strands of neo-Nietzschean philosophy. For those who need to know, you know. Right down to um, the, the content of music and rhyme and just conversation. Chatting with your mates. Weakness is not embraced, it's mocked, it's ridiculed. And to be weak is to be destroyed or to open yourself up to destruction. 
That's not what this text says. You know, there's many ways in which as I reflect upon the past year and I reflect upon where I am now, and not just the past year, but the past several years, mentally, emotionally, physically even, there are days where I wonder if I've ever felt weaker than I do now. Um, even as I preach to you this morning, I'm enduring a pounding headache. It feels weak. It feels weak to feel it. It feels weak to tell someone about it. There are days when I've never felt more weak. Some of you were at prayer meeting and you know why. I shared some things there and others have shared more in depth and you know why. The text is a timely reminder to me and a timely reminder to you, whatever your weakness that in our weakness, we know the power of Christ. In our weakness, we know the beauty and glory and grace of God. When we are weak, then we are strong. And that's what the text before us tells us this morning. It is fundamentally at the heart of everything this letter has been about. That is strong weakness. The Apostle Paul, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at this and I was summarizing some of what he was going through uh, uh, the, and what he's going through, particularly with reference to other people that he calls super apostles. I summarize their character and teaching as uh, basically celebrity preachers, platform personalities and Christian influencers who were poor stewards of their potential. Embracing pride and abusive behavior instead of the meekness and humility of Christ. They added to the gospel by collapsing the law and gospel distinction. And they elevated their teachings and ministry philosophies as sound, spiritual, and faithful. While claiming that Paul's was not. And that Paul had insincere and unspiritual motives for critiquing them. In their teaching... They emphasized wisdom and power. Their message was one that centered their self-identity and with it spiritual standing before God and even social standing in the church. They prized human wisdom and power. That human wisdom and power was seen in a certain kind of speaking and writing. The speaking, the writing that they expected would display a cultural standard of physical strength. They mocked Paul's personal appearance as well. They also mocked his writing style, his speaking style, his volume, his method, and other perceived inadequacies. He, he can never get it right to everyone's satisfaction. They called him a liar and a coward. They misrepresented what he was teaching. They said he was weak. And Paul proceeds to boast in his weakness. He boasts in his suffering, his poverty, the things that he has been through, the very things that they scoff at and they mock, he energetically claims for himself. The forces of humanity, of weaponized religion and politics, of nature and of body have all come against Paul 
and, and, and they've come from him from without, but he has other things from within. Namely, he speaks of his anxiety for the churches. Why does he put up with all of this? Why not just call it a day? Because he belongs to Jesus. He knows who he is, but most importantly, he knows whose he is. And so he focuses on his weaknesses as they amplify the message of God's power. He focuses on on his weaknesses. He embraces his weaknesses because they are a platform for the message of God's grace. Look at the text. I want you to first see what Paul could have boasted about. What Paul could have boasted about. He, he, He says... In chapter 12, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Some people always have a dream that they want to share. Maybe maybe they want to share it with you. Maybe you're the person wanting to share the dream. Um, They they have a vision or a revelation. And truth be told, I've, I've had some dreams and I've shared them with you. In this very series, I've told you um, things that I've been encouraged by and refreshed by that have come at a time when I can only say God was ministering to me. I could tell you about last last Sunday morning, early, like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, early. I was being hosted by um, a lovely family in Southport, and I I had had a, a... Frankly, a, a very uh, stressful journey up, uh, not because of the journey, but pastoral matters that I was trying to deal with and wrap up over the phone. And I, uh, I went to bed that night at midnight, absolutely shattered. And I woke up in the middle of the night or early morning shouting. And of all the things to shout when you're being housed by someone else... One word, help. I woke myself up just as I was reaching the L and the P. I froze in bed. I was like, what have I just done? My poor hosts, their children. I then, I I hear the dog. And I, 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 I'm frozen, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to let them know I, this is not real. So I started making other intentional muttering noises. Sort of. And that was it. <laughs> Snoring noises, and, and that was that. All for no avail, because they seemed to be very heavy sleepers, and they did not awaken. I told on myself at breakfast, just... Gently asking, did anyone wake up in the night? It seems that I only awakened myself. But after, after I realized that no one was kicking down my door, I paused for a moment. And I reflected on what might be happening physiologically that would cause me in the dark of the night to cry out in my sleep, help. I fell in over my death, and I needed God. 
And so there in that moment, I prayed and I said, Lord, I need you to help me. In my dreams, I'm praying, help me. In my waking, I'm praying, help me. And God continues to answer. But, you know, there's, there's, there's other, other things going on sometimes when someone wants to share their dream with you. Uh, their, their revelation. I, I've had fresh re- realizations that have been put on my soul as I spend time in the old revelations from the Holy Spirit through Scripture. And they fortify my ministry, don't get me wrong. But, but, but Scripture says that we should test such things to see if they are of God. If it drives you to seek Jesus, if it drives you to pray, if it drives you to search the scriptures, to fellowship, to service, to ministry, to dependency on God and so forth, fair enough. But I'm very concerned by a dependency on such things. If I only ever prayed when I had a dream, that would be a problem. If I, if, if I only shaped my life around what happens when I'm asleep, that would be a problem. If I built a theology system around my dreams or things that I've just thought as I'm walking in the day, uh, that would be an issue. You have to test things with the word of God. I'm very concerned by a slavery to dreams and revelations. I fundamentally reject anything that is not or will not be submitted to scripture and its authority. Something that I've noticed. People often are more focused on that they had a dream, that they had a revelation, than even the content thereof. This is proven when someone shares a dream or a so-called revelation that is clearly contradicted by Scripture. But they had it, so it must be true. And it is treated with greater authority in life than scriptural principles. Others may not share the content of their dreams and revelations, but they go on and on and on about them as a point of pride. Do you have dreams? Do you have revelations? They put other people down who answer, no, not really, or I don't really think much about them. Christians who have not had such things are treated by some as inferior and not just by other professing Christians. Other people who simply identify, you'll find this very commonly, as spiritual. Oh, I'm not a Christian, I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. They're always looking for dreams and revelations and they do not consider those lacking in the dreams and revelations department to be worthy of their time or consideration. Now it's really a shame because we have something greater, friends. We we have something better. We have something more sure in the scriptures. We have something that we can be absolutely confident is breathed out by God. But the Corinthians, they seem to have been impressed by other things. So Paul begins to boast. He boasts about dreams and he boasts about revelations. Surely this will pique their curiosity because that's what they're into, isn't it? So he says something about a dream, a revelation. I know a man who in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up. To the third heaven. 
Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So he's boasting, right? He's, he's perceived. They're into dreams and visions. And maybe some of you are into dreams and visions. And so the apostle Paul is saying, I, I'm going to boast about some dreams and visions. This is your heaven tourism moment. On November the 14th of 2004, a six-year-old boy by the name of Alex Malarkey. Sorry, the surname cracks me up a bit. I don't, I don't know if anyone recognizes that word. It's an Irish-American word, and it means nonsense or full of air. Um, so uh, uh, Alex Malarkey and his father, Kevin, they're involved in a car accident. That's not funny. It's bad timing for me to, to laugh. Um, Alex was in a coma. This part's true. He was in a coma for two months. He suffered severe injuries that left him quadriplegic. That is, he's paralyzed in all four limbs, okay? As he recovered, Alex told his parents stories of visions of heaven that he had supposedly seen, and his parents began to share these stories online, 2004, okay? Years later, he's undergoing um, an operation. Anyone remember Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman? And, you know, he was bound in a wheelchair and stuff. And he, he was the first person, actually, to undergo this operation. It enabled him to breathe without the use of a ventilator. Now, this is Alex Malarkey is about to become the youngest ever person to undergo that operation. 2009. Suddenly, years after this accident and years after, you know, his parents said a few things about some, some pictures of heaven he had <coughs> post-accident during his coma, they get a lot of media attention. This boy is undergoing this pioneering surgery. And in that moment, the father went to the mother and said, we have a story here. His, you know, we're getting a lot of media attention. Maybe we can... Maybe we can get a book deal. So the father goes to an agent, and the agent helps them write a book. He helps them write a book. And the book was called The Boy Who Went to Heaven. 2010, it was a New York Times bestseller. A TV movie was made based on it. Kevin, not Alex, the boy... Kevin, the father, hit the speech circuit, and he was raking in money. As early, though, as 2011, one year after the book was published, Alex, a teenager, went online and on a fan page for himself and said, this is the most deceptive book ever. One of the most deceptive books ever written. He received no royalties himself. He and his mother began actively campaigning against the book that had his name. His mother began voicing her frustrations increasingly about the book and inaccuracies it contained and concerns about the theology represented within it. And um, uh, then concerns about her husband, just as a man. His neglect of her and their son... He's not being a husband or a father. 
they would become estranged and eventually divorce. But in 2015, Alex wrote, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies, and they continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Alex explained that he had lied. True enough. He didn't explain that or why he was exploited. People love a sensational story. Even before he confessed that he had lied, he had a problem with the way the story was being marketed. He disagreed with the way it was written because he didn't write it. He disagreed with the way it was publicized. He disagreed with the cover and the title and all of this. But then he says the whole story is made up. Why do people buy into stuff like this? Because people are dissatisfied with the gospel message. People love a sensational story. They want to talk about their experiences of this or that or the other, but not so much God's love for them in Jesus Christ and how compelling they find the message of a sacrificially crucified and triumphantly resurrected Savior. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, I'm being a fool when he's writing this. He is holding up a mirror to their interests. He is holding up a mirror to their personalities and to what attracts them. They want to hear about revelations and dreams. Fair enough. He's going to tell them about some dreams and revelations. None th so we, we do have a story here. And this one's actually true. This is a story of a man who actually went to heaven. He, he says the third heaven. Very briefly, some of you might be wondering, what's that about? In the Jewish frame of mind, there's um, uh, three, three uses for the word heaven. There's the observable heaven in which you might see birds or airplanes flying. Okay, That's the first heaven. The second heaven, that's the more distant heaven. That's outer space. That's the universe, the cosmos, the stars, and all of the, the planets and the moon and all of that good stuff. The third heaven is the place of the immediate and direct presence of God, the throne room of the Lord, above and beyond all things, sovereignly over everything. And he says, I went to that heaven. I didn't go into the sky. I didn't go into outer space. I went into the immediate and direct presence of the Lord himself. Or rather, he says, I know a man who did. Very interesting. We know from what he says later that this man about whom Paul speaks in the third person is in fact Paul. He seems to be beginning the boast of all boasts then. This is, this is his publishing contract springboard. This is his best-selling book content. His, uh, his movie moment about the time he went to heaven. There's no record of it anywhere else. It was 14 years before he wrote this. Some people have said, oh, this is probably when Paul was, was, uh, was laying dead in the street. They just stoned him, and he's laying dead in the street. That actually doesn't work with the timeline. The timeline is there. It's like 14 years ago. If we go 14 years ago from when this book was most probably written, this episode, this dream revelation was before he even went on a missionary journey. So we don't know the context. We don't know... 
what caused this, nor does he. We want details. What was it like? Was he near death? Was he after death? Was it in his sleep? He can't explain the metaphysics of it. Was he dead? That's out of the body. Was he alive? That's embodied. He says, I don't know. Twice he emphasizes, I don't know. The the information that you're asking, I can't really give you in detail. Was I alive or dead? Not sure. Okay, what, what, what did he see? There's actually no comment on what he saw. Did you notice that? Other than that he says he was caught up to paradise. He went to paradise. Fair, fair enough. So he goes, he goes to, 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 to paradise. But he doesn't describe it. What was it like, Paul? What, what was heaven? Tell us, about, tell us about it. What did you see? No, doesn't have a clue. Doesn't record it for us at least. Did you hear anything? Because elsewhere in the Bible, we hear about the songs that they're singing in heaven. And John especially emphasizes the things he hears when he's in, in heaven, doesn't he? Things that people say and things that people sing. But does, does Paul? He did hear some things, yes, absolutely. But he can't talk about it. Sorry to disappoint. We want details, but he doesn't have them for us. Or he's not going to give them. Although what he says later indicates that he is indeed talking about himself. Paul at first is not even going to confirm it is him about whom he speaks. A man who went to heaven 14 years ago. Doesn't know if he was alive or dead. Doesn't describe what he saw there. Only that it was paradise. And can't talk about what he heard. What sort of revelation is that? Sort of, I mean, it's like he's teased us with this story about a dream or revelation. And then, oh, no, sorry. That's not what I'm here to talk about. (laughs) On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. Except of my weaknesses. Although if I should boast, and this is how we know it's Paul who had the dream... If I should boast, I would would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul is not living for himself, but for God. He can be received as God's servant. He can be received as, better still, God's adopted son. Or he can be rejected because he looks like a man who has been through the ringer and his speech doesn't measure up to cultural expectations and trends. In person, he was disregarded as unimpressive. And they can continue to disregard him as unimpressive. That's fine. But Paul will keep preaching Christ. He sets us up to think about a revelation that he received in heaven. And then he says, that's actually not what I'm going to boast in. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to boast about what I learned after that episode. We've seen what Paul chose to boast, did not choose to boast about, what he chose not to boast about. We need to see now what Paul chose to boast about. This is what he's going to boast in. If I must boast, he says in verse 31 back in chapter 11, 
If I must boast, verse 30 rather, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. What did Paul boast about? He didn't boast about when he went to heaven. He boasts about when he hid. Is that something to boast about? You're running for your life. You're being hunted. And you hid. It certainly wasn't something to boast about in his culture. Imagine you're hiding. Your life is threatened. Some of you may not have to imagine so much. Some of you do. Those of you who have been in a place where you've had to run for your life know the pounding of your heart. Not just the pounding of your heart. It's as though it goes up into your skull and the pounding of your head. And every little noise you hear and you wonder, will it draw attention? Will I be found? Will they catch me? Sweat. But you can't so much as move to wipe your eyes because the rustling will draw attention. Paul in a basket. A basket. Being lowered out of a window. The sound of the, the creaking. Some, some guys have their, their foot against the, the wall under the window and they're, they're pulling and there's that scraping noise as the basket collides with the wall and there's the, the creaking of the strain of the rope and there's the, there, there's the sound of clenched teeth and of groaning under the weight and Paul as he's being lowered down to the ground beneath knows that there's people at the city gates and there's people outside the houses and in the streets looking for him to take his very life. And he boasts about that. I will not lie. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. You think he's setting you up for a big boast, for something triumphant, for something victorious. And then he says... I hid in a basket and was lowered out of a window. Do you see what he's doing? He's mocking their pretense to strength. He's mocking their expectations of a warrior. And he's showing them what it is to be a lamb in the arms of the good shepherd. He boasts about when he hid. But then he... He, he, he goes on and says, they're like, oh, that, that was a bit of a, a letdown. Not what we were thinking he were about to boast in. So he tells about his dream. He talks about his revelation. But then he says, oh, I'm not going to, actually, I'm not going to boast about that. He's going to boast about what happened after. To keep me from being conceited, verse 7 of chapter 12 says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What revelations? The revelations he received in heaven that he can't talk about. That he's not going to share with us. That it seems he carried to his grave. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. 
in these verses, Paul boasts about when he was hurting. A thorn in the flesh is painful. He boasts about when he was harassed. A thorn in the flesh that won't go away is harassment. It just keeps worming its way in, poking you and prodding you, and you can't fish it out. doesn't matter what you do. And he feels helpless because when he goes to the only one who can take it out, God won't take it out. Have you ever had a thorn in your flesh? You know, you're working in the, in, in, in the garden or in the scrub or whatever. Growing up, uh, we were surrounded by, um, in my family, surrounded by fields and forests and scrub land. And at one point, my, my parents um, uh, purchased a plot of land across from the house that we were renting. And the dream was to, uh, to clear that land and eventually to build on it. We, we, we cleared the land and we did some tests on the soil and all of that and ended up selling the land on, passing it on to, to someone else. Um, but the, um, uh, the, the land was covered with scrub. It was covered with, um, with trees that were rotten and thorns and nettles and all of these things. And we, uh, vivid memory, I was eight years old, but it was a glorious day of clearing it and piling it high and burning it into the early hours of the morning. And then um, having to put it out and then burning it again the next day. In all of those type things, you're liable to get poked and prodded. And I remember multiple occasions as a child doing that sort of um, uh, labor, going to my parents with a thorn in my flesh, a splinter or something that had gotten its way in and I didn't know how to get it out. And, you know, they'd shown me how to, like, you, most of the time you can just sort of squeeze it, but it wasn't happening. And I'd try and pick it out and then it breaks. Oh, it's still there. And I'd go to my, my dad or to my mom and they'd get the tweezers and they'd perform surgery. And um, uh, ever since, if there's anything that I can perform surgery on, might be a mess, there might be some scarring, but I'll, I'll, I'll take my chances with that before something else. What if it couldn't be removed? The constant irritation, the constant pain, and they can't help you. And it causes great frustration. You, you, might not identify, but it's irritating. Is there something in your life that just won't go away? You see, Paul's not actually talking about a thorn, is he? He's using an analogy. He says, a messenger from Satan, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. It's interesting, it's a messenger of Satan, but he goes to the Lord because he knows the Lord has has power over Satan. He knows the Lord has power over this situation. Three times I pray, take it away from me. Take what from me? Over the years, people have proposed different things. Some have said it's a physical issue. Paul had bad eyesight. There's a, a fairly reliable tradition that says Paul couldn't see well. There's indicators in some of his letters that he had eye problems. And without some of the uh, modern uh, uh, sight aids that uh, many of us benefit from, including myself, he's struggling. And it just won't go away. Well, that's an interesting thought. But it, there, we, we can't be definitive. 
other people go with a more of an emotional thorn. Uh, Paul is haunted by the, the things that he did in the past. Remember, he says to Timothy that last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He refers, actually tells the Corinthians that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Timothy talks about how he's the chief of Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I persecuted the church of Christ. He has blood on his hands. People died under his watch. The first Christian martyr died under Paul's watch. And he's haunted by that. That's what they say. But we can't be definitive that that's the thorn. Paul regularly goes to assurance. Regularly goes to there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Other people say it, it's, it's his enemies. It's the people that we read about in the book of Acts who chase him around from town to town. Some people literally moving, going along with him to speak against him and to oppose his gospel message. All of those are viable, I suppose. But that's, he doesn't want us to fixate on the thorn. He wants us to fixate on the message that he learned from the thorn. Because God didn't take it away. And, and we, I know Jesus tells us to pray persistently. And there are some things that we must pray persistently for. But there comes a time, I think, when we have prayed enough for ourselves about a particular matter. God has heard us, leave it with him, and press on serving him. That's difficult for us to accept. But I know there came a time when I stopped praying for the healing of my eyesight. I have very bad eyes. And I stopped, I, I stopped praying. God heard me pray, he knows, and in his time he can heal me. I believe it. And any one of you who prays for something that, that might change and it doesn't change... That's happened. Sometimes God changes the situation. Sometimes he doesn't. But we have to trust him and we have to serve him. And Paul learned about that. Paul boasts about when he hid. Not because he was hiding, but because there in the basket, Jesus was with him. Paul boasts about when he was hurting, harassed, and helpless. Not because he was hurting, harassed, and helpless. But because through it all, God strengthened and sustained him. A century later, oral tradition about Paul's appearance was written down. He's described as short, bald-headed, crooked-legged, and mono-browed. Very detailed. But full of grace. Literally, that's what they say. But full of grace. It seems that this weak, unimpressive in person man really took to heart the voice of the Lord Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses. And you can add insults. Yes, your insults. Hardships. Yes, the ones that I endure even as I'm anxious for the churches. Persecutions. Calamities. I'm content with these. 
For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Full of grace. Not impressive to look at, but Jesus in Paul was impressive to look at. This past week, someone who played a very instrumental role in my life in many ways, known and unknown, appreciated and doubtless unappreciated by me, um, died. She went to be with the Lord after some years suffering first from uh, cancer and then from Alzheimer's. I had asked about her just last week. Um, asked my, my dad, how is she doing? And told me she's in a care home. Her, her husband uh, of well over 50 years is living where he always has, but is no longer maintaining a ministry. And this lovely Christian couple this week was parted by death. And her earthly remains were laid to rest yesterday in the church of my childhood. Her name is Glinda Faye Miller. Lovely woman. Very kind, very sweet, always hospitable. I remember on one occasion, most vividly, they were facing a crisis in their family. An excruciatingly painful moment. We were having a, a family day and the call came. And my dad answered the call. It was, I believe, around, it was around a birthday or Christmas. I know that much because we had just opened some presents and some bad news had come in and he said, boys, get in the car. We're going to visit the Millers. And I remember sat there, this lovely woman, tears in their eyes, offering, we have these little package sweets, the guys know, they know I like them, little Debbies, they're called, and uh, they're, they're very sweet. So many different kinds. And she'd always give me lit, little Debbie's and lemonade when I went to her house. And there they are suffering. And her first thought was for me, can I get you a little Debbie and some lemonade? And I had the presence of mind as a mercifully regenerate at a young age boy to say, nah, it's okay. We're not here for that. She died. She's with the Lord. But it's her husband I want to share with you about in closing. His name is David. David Miller. Da David has for over 60 years been a preacher of the gospel. Thousands of sermons he preached across the country, the USA. Thousands of men have trained for ministry through his expository preaching conference. Primarily men who have no access um, to... Um, uh, affordable seminary education, but are nonetheless called for ministry often in rural environments and country churches across the southern USA. He started that expository preaching conference alongside my father in 1997, and uh, I learned everything that I hold to this day about preaching there, not in seminary. He was saved at 16, called to preach at 18, pastored a church for five years, then became director of missions for a Baptist association of churches, coordinating their evangelistic activities across the churches. 
He held that position for 25 years. He was and still is active in one church all of this time. Indeed, the church I grew up in where my father was pastor and active in his association of churches, active in his wider convention of churches, stemming in many ways the tide of of, um, theological liberalism in that organization. He served faithfully and significantly on committees and trustee boards and always for the blessing and benefit of churches and the advance of the gospel. Blessed with relative longevity, he maintained an active cross-country preaching ministry until very recently. And one would assume he was the picture of health. Because if you're doing the math, he's not a young man. Would you be surprised if I told you, in my life, I never saw him stand? I never saw him stand. I shake everyone's hand. Some people find that odd. Some people find it old school. Other people still maintain it's a decent way of greeting. I shake everyone's hand. I never shook his hand. Not his right hand. Someone gives me their left hand to shake, normally children, I'll, I'll school them on the proper way to, to shake hands. But I shook this guy's left two fingers. That's it. And the last time I saw him, I barely did that. I tapped knuckles. What are you going on about? From conception, this dear old man had peroneal muscular atrophy. He did grow and he did develop as a child, but the day came when he was unable to walk without aid. The day came when he was more reliant on a wheelchair. I never saw him, as I said, to my knowledge, standing, but others who did see him have told me. He would be wheeled up to the pulpit by his assistants. They would lift him out of the chair and they would manually lock his knees and his hips into place. And he would stand draped over the pulpit and preach. Eventually he couldn't do that. So he preached from his wheelchair instead. In the years that I've known him, he's only had the use of Two or one now fingers on his left hand. He moved that, he moved the remote control to his wheelchair with that finger. That's it. His muscles and his body were completely wasted away. He could not hold a Bible, he could not look down. His neck is stiff. He moves his face and his eyes, but it got to the point he could move nothing. So what did he do? He memorized the Bible. He memorized the Bible. Every time he would be wheeled up to preach, he would quote from memory his text, and then he would preach clearly, succinctly, powerfully, and eloquently a gospel message without the aid of notes. 
thousands of sermons, hours and hours of gospel content. His muscles and body completely wasted away, but he kept serving God. Did he pray for healing? Absolutely. Did he pray that this thorn would be taken from his side? Yes, most certainly. But it didn't happen, so he pressed on nonetheless with joy in obedience to God and service not only to his church, but to many churches. How, how could one so weak have monumental impact through consistent worship and witness? The sufficiency of God's grace. Friends, what is it that you are praying, God, take it away? And, and, and what part of your life is God saying, my grace is sufficient for you? Do you really believe it? Do you really believe in the sufficiency of God's grace? When, when you sin, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're sick, my grace is sufficient for you. When, 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 you're, when you're sinned against, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're sad, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're struggling with, with school, work, family, friendships, or church, my grace is sufficient for you. When you shove against the darkness and the darkness shoves back at you, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're stricken and afflicted, see him for whom our sins was stricken and afflicted and hear his voice. My grace is sufficient for you. When you are struck down, and although you've gotten up in the past, this time you stay down. There's no getting up. There comes a day when there will not be any getting up. Until the voice of the risen Savior calls out. My grace is sufficient for you. And the dead in Christ are raised. When you smash down in resurrection victory on the head of Satan in the name of the God of peace. My grace is sufficient for you. And when we stand before the throne of God. To be welcomed into our eternal reward. The Lord may look at us. His preserved and persevering people. And in the face of our sins, our failures, and yes, our weaknesses. What will he say? Son, daughter, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is not only for the mountaintop experiences, brothers and sisters. Grace is... For the hiding in the basket, being lowered out a window on the other side of a wall situation. Grace is enjoyed in flowers, but it is experienced through thorns. God's grace is enough, and it's completely worth it. Amen. Father, we come before you weak. Empty-handed, nothing to bring, nothing to offer, exhausted, exasperated. As some of us heard at the angel church's service yesterday, 
low mood and high anxiety. All of these things. We're weak. Show us, Lord, that when we are weak, we are strong. Show us that your grace is sufficient for us. Show us that your grace is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.